In the book, Wounded Healer, the writer tells this tale, it's a myth, obviously, from ancient India, whereby four brothers call upon the gods for special powers, and they are granted these powers. And they decide to meet in the jungle one day to, to demonstrate, to show off their powers. And the first one says, well, my power is I can take a bone and put flesh on it. So he picks up a random bone off the ground and he puts flesh on it. The second brother says, well, I have the capacity to take a bone with flesh on it and add hair and skin. So he adds hair and skin to the creature. The third brother says, well, I have the capacity to add limbs and a head. So he adds limbs and a head to this creature that's developing. And the fourth brother says, well, I have the capacity to give life. And so he touches the creature and it comes to life. But unbeknownst to the four brothers, the bone that they'd picked up was a lion's bone. And the lion came to life and was angry and ended up killing the four brothers on the spot. The moral of the story is, is when you act like God, the very things you try to create will ultimately destroy you because that's not your job and that's not your role. When we act like God, the very things we create will destroy us too. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn that the hard way. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon in the 6th century BC. He was responsible for a successful military campaign against Judah. He'd captured the southern tribes of Israel. He'd taken them into captivity. He'd appointed Daniel and several other noblemen and men of great intellect and wisdom to his team of technocrats, government employees, government servants. But he was prideful and arrogant. At one point in time, he'd built a big statue and he required everyone to bow down to it. And that didn't go so well, did it? Another point in time, even though he was warned, he's standing out on his roof and he looks out over Babylon. And he's like, wow, what an awesome king I am. And that didn't go so well for him either. Now we're in Daniel chapter five. And Daniel chapters four and five really are about the humiliation of two Babylonian kings. So as I mentioned to you previously, chapter one of Daniel is written in Hebrew. Chapter eight onward is written in Hebrew, but there's six chapters in the middle there, chapters two through seven, that are written in Aramaic so that not only would the believing community hear these words, but the Babylonians could read it too. And chapters four and five parallel each other, just like chapters three and six, and then chapters two and seven parallel each other. We're sort of in the middle of this cluster of six chapters, and we have the humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter four, and then we have the humiliation of his successor, Belshazzar in chapter five. Now, Belshazzar is referred to in the text as the son of Nebuchadnezzar. But in Hebrew, son of could mean son, grandson, great-grandson. In other words, descendant of. We know from history that Belshazzar was most likely the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar had died. His son, I think his name was Nabalonius, took power. And then Belshazzar, his grandson, is now ruling the nation. And many decades had passed. Daniel had been serving in these various king's courts for some time. By the way, if you've ever read the book of Esther, where the king gets ticked off at his bride, Vashti, for not showing up when he calls upon her, Vashti was the grand, or the daughter rather, of Belshazzar. 
So there's a, there's a sort of a connection here between these various monarchs. And this new king, Belshazzar, is ruling, and we read about his spiritual nosedive, or maybe a better way of putting it, the, the, the outing of his lack of, of true faith in, in, the, in the true and living God here in Daniel chapter 5. So join with me in Daniel chapter 5. We're going to start reading with verse 1. And we are looking at some lengthy passages of Scripture, but rule in preaching is you have to preach the unit. So if the unit's three verses, then you preach three verses. If the unit is 50 verses, you've got to preach all 50 verses. And this is a narrative, so you can't just sort of preach it in three sermons. So we're going to do a fair bit of reading again today. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, a.k.a. his grandfather, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Quick question, good idea or bad idea? Bad idea. This is probably not going to go well for him. Then they brought in the golden vessels. These are vessels, folks, that had been committed and dedicated to the sacred worship of the true and living God, being taken out of his treasury by a pagan king and using them for a big pagan party that he was putting on. The house of God in Jerusalem and the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine, and listen to this. There's a religious component and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Go like this. <laughs> Didn't go well for Nebuchadnezzar. Even if I'd never read this before, I would suspect this is probably not going to go well for him either. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote, and as you would expect, then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in... Why? Why, why are they always calling these guys that are completely incompetent? But they do it every time. There's an issue. Let's call the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, the nitwits. And the king declared to the wise men, overstatement there, of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So, okay, yeah, this is a, this is a good idea because we all know that when you offer people power and money, they tend to tell the truth. Bad idea. Any tie-ins between cultures and rulers today? I think so. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His color changed. His lords were perplexed. So they all come in. I think I skipped a verse there, verse eight. All the king's wise men came in and they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. So he's doubly upset. Surprise, surprise. They weren't able to do it for Nebuchadnezzar twice. They can't do it for Belshazzar. Then there's the queen. <clears throat> The queen, 
was really not supposed to be speaking in that culture, which is one of the themes in scripture. The, the, one of the more unlikely people generally get it first. They tend to be a little bit ahead of the person that's supposed to get it. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the king declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Just pause there for a moment and take note of this. How would he not already know that? Shouldn't he know that? Shouldn't, shouldn't a person that's ruling presently know history? Shouldn't, shouldn't a person who has power and authority understand a little bit about what has happened previously? We're not talking about ancient history, just maybe 10 or 20 years earlier. But so quickly, people forget the lessons that have been learned by their forebears. And they forget about the resources that are available to them. So it's almost like a surprise here. In the days of your father, <clears throat> light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. At some point, he obviously had been demoted. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. It's interesting that she knows his Hebrew name. Not only his assimilation name, but she also knows his Hebrew name. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So we have here some lessons to consider. Belshazzar was not a man of faith in the true and living God. And Belshazzar had forgotten history, redemptive history. And I would just suggest to you that the absence of faith and remembrance are always present when sin happens. Think about that for a minute. When we sin, we not only are choosing not to trust and believe in our benevolent God's rules and plans for our lives, but we're also forgetting about how he has worked in history, both to bless and to judge the unrighteous. Think about that. So that, that's some, if you, if you kind of want to think about the psychology of sin, so to speak, in your own head, it's like, why do I sin? Well, like, I have a sin in my life or I keep falling back. Like, why, Lord? Ah, maybe it's because I'm not trusting that God is actually good and his rules are best. But I've also forgotten about redemptive history. This is why we should be students of history. Especially biblical history. So he forgets what God has done. He seems unaware of it. <clears throat> Maybe he wasn't taught, which would have been the fault of his father and the generation that came before him. It can be forgotten so quickly. So here we all are. We love Jesus. We're in church. <clears throat> it only takes a generation for the church to go extinct. Now it won't because Christ promises to build his church, 
but it can go from large numbers to very small numbers pretty quick. Just We're always one generation away from extinction, as, as has been said by other preachers. And it's, it's true. So we have to do a good job in teaching the next generation what's happened in the past. There's a couple lessons I want to draw out of this text. The first one is the destructive nature of pride. The destructive nature of pride. We saw it again in Nebuchadnezzar. We saw it in Belshazzar. By the way, just a historical side note, best as we can tell, Belshazzar was actually involved in a coup along with his father to prematurely take power away from their grandfather. Nice family, eh? Think you got some family problems? So he was sort of reaping what he sowed. His dad had ruled for a while, now it was his turn, but they'd sort of jumped the gun a little bit and they were prideful and arrogant. And two of the ways they expressed their pride and arrogance is through what we could call a sacrilegious life and an idolatrous life. So sacrilegious life is where they take that which is dedicated to God, that which is pure and holy, and they use it for profane purposes. We, we don't think a lot about holy relics or holy objects in the New Testament church. But there are certain things under the Old Testament system that were dedicated to specifically to the use of God. And they symbolized God's presence and God's holiness and God's provision to his people, God's sanctity. And to take of all things treasures from God's temple where God dwelt, manifest his presence in an extra special way. And to use those in a pagan ritual is, is absolutely disgusting to God. And then secondly, they add insult to injury by praising the gods, plural, of gold and silver. When there's only one true and living God, they praise the gods. They're polytheists. They worship multiple gods. And immediately God, and I would say by his grace, actually, wrath, wrath is always an expression of grace, ultimately. We may not like it, but wrath is an expression of grace. The judgment of God is an expression of grace. A good parent will compliment and reward and they will also discipline their child. And both of those actions are well-intentioned in a godly parent. So God immediately intervenes and this prideful man who's ruling the superpower of the world at the time is pictured as a guy whose knees are knocking together, his color leaves his face, and he's absolutely terrified. Just like that, God can humble the boastful, the prideful. God shows up to issue a warning to this arrogant king. And as we look at him and all of his arrogance, it's probably a, a good point in our worship service for us to do a little bit of soul searching to determine whether or not there might be some pride in us too. Maybe ours is more subtle. We have had more years to master it so that it maybe even looks like righteousness, but it's actually pride. We're all, we're all susceptible to this, are we not? Is it possible that you treat God less than you treat yourself? That's sacrilege. You may not be pulling out ancient relics, but when you treat God less than he deserves to be treated. Sometimes treating God less than you treat yourself. 
serving yourself more than serving God. Being more concerned about your reputation being tarnished than God's reputation being tarnished. That's sacrilegious. Do you honor, is it possible that you honor the tangible over the immaterial? And when I say immaterial, I'm talking about with a capital I, God. Is it possible that you honor the created over the creator? I, we don't know a lot of people in our culture that literally have statuettes, figurines, and the mantel place of their living room fireplaces and bowing down to them every morning. But we do tend to live in a culture that's heavily materialistic. And we worship the created. Some people worship their own bodies. They're the sorts that are always posting the selfies to make sure they're, you know how great they look. It's body worship, self-worship. Nothing wrong with having possessions. They're bestowed upon us by God if earned properly. But we, don't, we don't worship our houses, our properties, our cars, the number of children we have the things we've accomplished. We steward them. What have we said over and over and over again in our church? Ownership is the enemy of stewardship. How much do you own? Zero. You're just a steward of a basket full of goods for a very brief life that all belong to God. You come into this world naked, Paul taught Timothy, and you leave naked. We just steward it. But so often we, we hold on to the things of life with a clenched fist Let's not make these mistakes as he made. We don't tamper with worship. We don't flaunt our power and we do not worship false gods. We don't worship the Buddha, Krishna, Muhammad, Allah. We don't worship the state. We don't worship science. We don't worship self. When we do this or our national or civil rulers do this, God will eventually take us slash them down. So God's man steps onto the scene and oftentimes, as is the case in the present, so is the case in biblical history. It's the lone voice. It's the small minority. It's a remnant. In fact, if you think about it, it has to be that way. It always has to be the lone prophet, the small group, the remnant, because if it was the majority, the sin wouldn't happen in the first place. So God's man steps out of the shadows. He'd been demoted for a period of time and he boldly prophesies against the, the king's sinful behavior and he pronounces judgment. Then Daniel was brought in, this is verse 13, before the king the king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom my king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you. Not really, but he's a polytheist. And that light and understanding and wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, again, major overstatement, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the dream. And I was just surprised and shocked because I thought they knew everything. No. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, same offer, 
You shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be third, the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, Daniel had some life experience. He knew that his previous promotions for serving the king hadn't stuck. Why? Because godless people are very fickle. Don't be too excited when they promote you, reward you, award you, pat your back. It's only temporary, folks. Soon you'll be at the bottom of the barrel again when someone else steps forward. You'll be forgotten. You'll be tossed out. You'll be left aside. So what does Daniel say? He answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and your rewards to another. (laughs) I'm not here for the paycheck. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and power. In other words, God, and this is, this squares up with Romans 13. God is the one whose hand is ultimately on the appointment of civil rulers. Don't assume, therefore, that he always appoints good guys to office. Sometimes he appoints bad guys to office because he has a plan that he's not yet revealed. And he's going to use bad guys to ultimately bring himself glory as they rise and rise and rise, persecute and tyrannize their people. The taller they are, the harder they fall. So don't assume in your theology of statecraft that just because a person's in power that that's part of God's moral will. It's part of his creedal, his declared, his sovereign will. That's true. But it doesn't mean that they're God's man. But God declares here through Daniel that even the tallest, highest, most prestigious king on the planet was put there by God. And because of the greatness that he gave him, All peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive, and whom he would, he raised up, and who he would, he humbled. And when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. This is a very applicable statement for us as we maybe ask the question, why, Lord? <laughs> why have you put these people in charge of our country in positions of great governance? Why? Why? Well, when they're brought down, God gets a lot of glory from that. And this should strike fear into the heart of anyone and everyone in a position of influence or authority or power. We have to be so ruthless in the realm of motivation. So ruthless. So ruthless in evaluating ourselves. Is there something in me? I ask myself this as a leader, an influencer. Is there something, is there sin in me that my 
position, my authority, my power is feeding. Don't overlook it, Aaron. Don't turn a blind eye to it. Am I feeding something wicked in my own heart, in my own life? If I am, it'll be revealed. I'll be the guy on the internet, the fallen pastor. The guy being chastised. The guy, I told you so. I told you he wasn't the real deal. And you could find yourself in the same boat too. So be careful. Be humble lest you stumble. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was set like that of a beast. Remember that account, chapter four. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys and he was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of the heavens until he knew the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. This is a bold thing to say, but at this point, Daniel's like, the gloves are off. I'm not gonna beat around the bush. I'm not gonna be vague. I'm not gonna circle in. You've not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house, you brought him before you and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drank wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gods of gold, wood, iron, wood, and stone, which <laughs> other prophets talk about this, how foolish it is, which do not see or hear or know. It's ridiculous that we worship the created, especially inanimate objects. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Truthful, maybe not nice. Maybe there's too much of an emphasis in our current culture on niceness. You weren't nice. You hurt my feelings. I was a little too public of a rebuke. Well, he goes on to say, then from his presence, the hand was sent and the writing was inscribed. And this was the writing that was inscribed. Mean, mean, tekel and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mean, God has numbered your days. So it's four words, three words, two repeated that have a meaning to them. Number the days of your kingdom, brought it to an end. So you're done, dude. Your expiry date has been revealed. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Picture a big scale. The righteous expectations of God over here and Belshazzar's morality, righteousness, and he, he doesn't measure up to God's standards. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So in biblical history, there are five, four kingdoms that sort of rule the world, the Babylonians. So we have Nebuchadnezzar, Nabonidus, and Belshazzar. When, that, when this man's reign ends, a new people group rise to power in Mesopotamia, the split Medo-Persian kingdom. And then after them, the Greeks rise to power for a couple hundred years, and then after them, the Romans. So come the time of Christ, we're four kingdoms out. So then Belshazzar gave the command, and even though Daniel said, I don't want it, 
Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. So instead of getting his head lopped off, he actually is honored once again by civil authority. So we have on one hand pride, then we have on the other hand humility, which is where we wanna ultimately go. So it's a call to humility under God. There's a report from the queen, which I think is interesting because it does reveal on some level that even unbelievers can tell the difference between pride and humility. Even though they aren't likely to commend you for it. There was something about Daniel that in her memory impressed her. He had a reputation in the court. He was promoted and demoted, promoted and demoted, promoted and demoted throughout his tenure in Babylon. But there was something about him that impressed her. Folks, you may not in the moment be being recognized for your righteousness, for your humility. There's going to there's gonna be ebbs and flows to this. There's going to be times when people are like, man, I really appreciate that woman. Man, I really appreciate that man. And there's going to be other times when you're completely forgotten. You're on no one's radar. No one's thinking about you. They're not remembering the stance you took, the sacrifices you made. They're, they've moved on with life. But the time may come when you're called out of the shadows, called out of retirement, and you're back in the spotlight. There's going to be ebbs and flows to, to ministry, to our public influence. But one of the things we all should love about Daniel, and we see this from the opening chapter of the book, is he wasn't in it for himself. If there's, if there's no other lesson you take away, just remember that. He's not in it for himself. He's not doing ministry for money. Obviously, he was supported in some way. He wasn't working a side job. He was fed in the court. He had lodgings in the court. His clothes came from probably the taxes that the king had extracted from his people. He was supported by the state, the organization within which he lived, but he wasn't in the ministry, and by the way, he viewed his job in government as a ministry. I'm not the only guy here doing ministry. If you're a Christian, no matter where you work, you're doing ministry. Hopefully you are actually doing ministry there. So you're doing ministry, but he doesn't do it for the money. This is something we have to fight against too, the professionalization of ministry people that are in it for the money. Many years ago, I was doing a funeral at a local funeral home. And sometimes when you do a funeral, people give you two or 300 bucks for doing it. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, whatever. And there was a guy I, I met, an, uh, a retired pastor, and he, he told me he would actually hang around the funeral home waiting for customers. It was like his side gig. Hey man, you want me to do your funeral? Give me 300 bucks, you know? Really? Not only is that gross, but it's just kind of like unprincipled. That's what you do. People that start wedding agencies so they can you know, do marriages for money. Really? It's, it's not cool. We need to evaluate, are we in it for God or self? 
So our mindset should be, we're not in it for the money. We're certainly not in it to be people pleasers. Does Daniel show any indication he's a people pleaser? Does he just deliver half the truth? Does he say, okay, I'm, I'll send you a letter. I'm going to go on vacation like 100 kilometers or I'll, I'll send you a letter. No, he puts his neck on the line. Third, he's willing to speak the truth. And fourth, he's willing to suffer loss, which is, should, be, should be values that we all possess. Not in it for the money. Not in it to please people. As much as it's nice when people are pleased, we're not in it for that. We're willing to speak the truth in love. But speaking the truth in love doesn't mean you're always speaking with a airy, fairy, soft, genteel voice. And willing to suffer loss. These are some things we see in Daniel's life. But again, I'll emphasize this. That doesn't mean that we're just being called to be like Daniel, but to encounter and allow our lives to be transformed by the God that encountered Daniel's life. If your life is simply trying to be modeled after Daniel, that's just very, where's the power behind that? It's just your decision-making. It's, it's your willpower. It's your, I mean, I would just love to be like Daniel. You ever identify people in the church? I'd really like to be like her. I'd really like to be like him. I'm going to follow them around and just kind of try to mimic them. Well, you could do that. And maybe at some point in time, people are like, you know, is that your doppelganger? But it won't stick if you encounter the God that the person you appreciate serves and you learn the lessons that they have learned. You'll be you, the same kind of righteous characteristics present in your life. So there's nothing wrong with learning from one another, from having good role models around us, but ultimately... Ultimately, it's our God that transforms us. So if I have negatives in my life, it's not God's fault. If I have positives in my life, that's because of God. So any good that I have in me is not from me. The message is not just to moralize people, but to point people towards God. We call this a theocentric, a God-centered focus in our biblical teaching and preaching. When God is your all in all, when, now I will say this, because Daniel had put his neck on the line previously, I suspect that it was easier this time. So this wasn't new for Daniel. As a teenage boy, he put his neck on the line when he was invited into the king's palace. I'm not into that kind of a diet, food sacrifice to idols, I'm gonna do my own thing. He put his neck on the line. He put his neck on the line him and his friends, by not bowing down to the statue. We're going to have a lion's den incident yet. So this is part of his lifestyle. His lifestyle was not, oh, once in a while, I'll put my neck on the line. It was just part of the way he lived. It was normal for him to offer himself as a living sacrifice to God. And when God is your all in all, you will also be motivated to do the right thing at the right time, the right way, and God will bless you for it. It's interesting that Daniel was even bold enough to use his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, as an example. So if it is true, I think it is historically, it's not recorded in the scriptures, 
that Belshazzar was part of a plot to overthrow his grandfather, to then use the man that he helped overthrow as a positive example, a negative and a positive example of his humiliation and his surrender to God. That's a bold move. That's a bold move for Daniel to make. But folks, at times, listen to this very carefully because you're going to hear this debated all the time among modern day Christians. All the time. Folks, confrontation of the abuse of power, even at the risk of death, fines, or imprisonment, has always been one of the marks of godly people. Oh no, just just keep your gospel in your church, pastor. Just deliver the basics of the gospel. We're all sinners. We're all going to hell. That's the bad news. If we don't put our faith in Jesus Christ and him alone for our salvation, we cannot be saved. So put yourself and put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you'd like to walk the aisle and meet me at the front now, that would be great. Just stick to that message. Separation of church from state means that the church can never speak into the realm of the state. Really? Maybe, I guess Daniel didn't know that yet. Folks, godly people throughout history, we don't pick on the government, but godly people throughout history, in the present, back at the time of the Reformation, back in the first, second, third century before Christianity was legalized, back before that when Daniel was in Babylon, godly people have always understood that at times you have to call out civil authorities. You've transgressed your sphere. You don't have the authority to do that or do that. You're leading people astray. You need to repent. Whether they do or not, you're not responsible for the outcome, but you are responsible to be a faithful prophet for God, to police God's covenant, to speak truth into the darkness. So next time someone says it's not our job, point, point them to this, this narrative. Daniel did it, so should we. So we can ask ourselves, how, how committed are we to this kind of humility mixed with courage? By the way, this is mildly irritating. This notion that humility means silence. That if you're truly humble, you'll never say anything. If you're truly humble, you'll just sort of walk around and speak around like 10 decibels max. Just sort of whisper. Men, you want to be a Christian man that follows Jesus? You need to be, you need to be effeminate. Wear a cardigan. I look like Mr. Rogers. <laughs> Don't ever raise your voice. Don't ever demonstrate anger. That Jesus didn't do that. Don't be bold. That's that's a lie. That's a lie to silence you. Courage and humility go hand in hand. Boldness and humility go hand in hand. Sometimes you have to raise your voice and you can still be a very humble man or woman. Sometimes you have to persist. Sometimes you have to confront power. Bold confrontation. Now, there's some barriers to this. 
Admittedly, I just want to out them so you're thinking about them in your own life. Personality does play a role. Sometimes certain personalities find it easier to boldly confront than others, so just be aware of that. Fear of the consequences or man is another thing that sometimes holds people back, and that's a reality for all of us. Popularity, people will lie about you. People will make things up. People will falsely represent you. They'll misread you. That can be hard to take. If you're a truth person, you don't want people out there lying about you. Culture, this, this fascinating culture we live in where on one hand, it's like tolerate everything except for people that aren't tolerant of foolishness. It's a weird world. You should be able to say anything, be everything you want, do anything you want, except if you disagree with that philosophy of life then we're going to censor you and push you to the sidelines. That can, be, that can be hard to take. So we live in a culture that's very, very challenging in that regard. But we, we need to be driven by principle, not pragmatics. And God's warnings are dire and people's lives are on the line. Even with the various sinful ideologies that have crept into Canadian culture, lives are on the line. We're not just fighting against abortion because, well, we don't like abortion. It's not biblical. Folks, babies are being killed. We're not fighting against gender surgeries because, oh, that's gross. We don't like that. That's not our thing. It's because ignorant people's bodies are being mutilated. We're not upset when drag queens show up in kindergarten classrooms because, well, I'm not into drag queen stuff. It's because they're trying to indoctrinate and propagandize children in their most impressionable age category into sin. So we speak out against sin, but we also understand that while we're guarding the holiness of God and trying to be true to scripture, when we abandon God's laws, people suffer. So if you actually love people, you actually love people, you will speak the truth. Because that's what we have. We have words. Like, when are we going to war? We don't need to. We have words. All the nuttiness in culture today boils down to one thing. Words, lies, half-truths, false truths. The problem is the church maybe up till the present, has largely been silent on these issues because we have this weird idea that the gospel is just about getting you to heaven. Now we pray the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, but we don't actually mean that on earth as it is in heaven. So we speak the truth and our, we're, we're concerned about the holiness of God and we're concerned about truthfulness to the word of God, but we're also concerned about all kinds of people that are being led to the slaughter that are being led astray, that are being indoctrinated into very dark, godless, destructive philosophies. So this lesson here should shape our theology of God. God is a God is intolerant of evil. How intolerant? On a scale of one to 10, 100. 
God is very intolerant of evil. So if you're a child, you should be intolerant of evil in your own life and in the lives of others. You should be intolerant of it. This is a call to intolerance. Not to the exclusion of grace, but you should be intolerant. And it also shapes our theology of ministry. How we engage with the state, how we interact with those around us, what we say, how we say it, and when we say it. He said it publicly, he said it boldly, and he said it without apology. And so should we. There's a lot of voices in this room. There's a lot of voices in this room. And each of you is connected to tens and hundreds and thousands of other people. The influence that you can wield is incredible. If together as a Christian church, we speak the truth into the darkness repeatedly, relentlessly, year after year, we can bring about lasting change on God's behalf for his honor and glory and to the benefit of the world within which we live. So let's do that. Let's avoid pride and let's humbly speak the truth in love. 